Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club. Today we will be discussing one of our top papers in the area of stereotactic and functional surgery. The title of the paper is Improved Function Following Deep Brain Stimulation for Chronic Severe Traumatic Brain Injury. We have the lead authors of the papers and faculty discussants with us. I would ask Dr. Rizai to introduce himself. Uh, yes, hello, this is Ali Rezai, um, the Director of the Neurological Institute and the Center for Neuromodulation at The Ohio State University. Dr. Corrigan? Yes, uh, I'm John Corrigan. I'm a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and a psychologist by training. I'm here at Ohio State University as well. Dr. Sweet? Hello, I'm a stereotactic and functional neurosurgeon. I'm at University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center and Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Ohatki? Hi, I'm Pratik Ohatki, one of the chief residents in neurosurgery at Penn State Medical Center and um, one of the CNS leadership fellows for the year. Well, welcome everyone. Thank you for taking out your time and I would ask Dr. Corrigan to lead away with a summary of the paper. Well, thank you very much. Very pleased to be uh, sharing this work uh, via the podcast and uh, look forward to questions and discussion. Um, I'll just try to briefly recap that uh, this was a, a safety and feasibility study of using DBS for traumatic brain injury and specifically persons who had experienced a traumatic brain injury sometime in the past and had residual severe cognitive and behavioral deficits. And I'll talk just a little bit more about uh, their presentation uh, in a moment. Uh, we, uh, it was a case series. We enrolled uh, four patients uh, and uh, all of them were, uh, had limited um, self-care, um, limited um, ability to move about in the community, and more importantly, uh, in some cases had limited initiative, while in other cases uh, behavioral self-regulation problems or impulsivity, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Um, the uh, target uh, for the deep brain stimulation was the nucleus accumbens, and the, uh, this was an extension of work we've done with other populations where we have used this target to try to uh, specifically to increase um, self-regulation or self-control. Uh, with that target, we uh, feel we can reach uh, parts of the frontal cortex, particularly the prefrontal cortex and uh, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and, and um, the frontal poles, uh, which we think are important for um, self-regulation of emotion and cognition and behavior. So our, our four subjects uh, ranged uh, in age um, at the time of surgery from uh, 30 to 45. Um, they all, there was a considerable range in how long post-injury they were, um, with the longest um, uh, post-injury uh, being um, 21 years and the most recent being six years. So as you can see, they were all in the chronic phase. Uh, all four had had car crashes, so these were high, um, high energy exchange, uh, original injuries, and thus the severity of what, um, of what occurred to the brain. Uh, three were male and one was female. 
Uh, our intention uh, in selecting folks with severe brain injury was to also further uh, to select individuals who um, showed specific kinds of problems with self-regulation. So uh, two of our uh, participants had, uh, among other, their other issues, had uh, problems with initiative, um, with uh, one of those participants being, uh, frankly, a, a Buick. Uh, did not uh, independently initiate behavior that once initiated he could complete, but didn't independently initiate. Uh, our other two participants were more marked by lack of self-control and particularly impulsivity, um, which included everything from disinhibition and sexual inappropriateness to uh, anger and uh, other signs of um, uh, poor, poor judgment. Uh, as I indicated, this was a case series, so uh, we looked at them over a two-year period. Uh, and uh, taking um, assessments at um, six different time points. Uh, the first two time points were pre-stimulation, um, uh, so we had a pre-surgical and post-surgical baseline, and then four additional uh, assessments uh, after the initiation of the uh, stimulation. So uh, one uh, after there had been a period of um, six weeks of stimulation only. Uh, then there was a period of six weeks when uh, the participants participated in outpatient rehabilitation. It was basically three times uh, uh, a week for uh, two hours. Uh, and then um, after that assessment, there was a period of nine months uh, where the stimulation continued and we reassessed, and that essentially put us at the one-year mark post-surgery, and then we followed up again one year later, so almost two years um, uh, post the original surgery. As I indicated, this was a uh, safety and feasibility study, and uh, first in terms of feasibility, one of our major uh, questions was uh, with the severity of the brain damage and uh, the effect on tissue, would we be able to find a safe uh, route to do to, to this target uh, for stimulation. Uh, in the end, um, what we uh, the answer was yes, that it only required us um, essentially uh, reviewing or um, taking six uh, potential participants through the screening process uh, before the four were selected. Um, of the two who didn't go forward to surgery, um, one was because there was not an apparent safe route because of the extent of um, scar tissue and, and other uh, residuals of the brain damage. Um, and then the other participant who didn't go through to surgery um, uh, decided um, before moving to that stage uh, that he did not want to um, take that step and be part of the research. Um, so, but uh, bottom line, it was, um, uh, we were able to, um, to reach our target and, and reach it safely. In terms of uh, adverse events, uh, there were only three overall serious adverse events and only one of those was related to the procedure. Um, that one was a battery drain that was um, due to a short uh, in the, um, uh, in the, uh, the unit that uh, meant that uh, it was um, discharging um, too quickly. 
Um, the two other unrelated serious adverse events, one was uh, skin cancer that one of our participants um, uh, developed and one was a seizure um, that resulted from um, medication uh, not being restarted by the family uh, after surgery, a misinterpretation of, of the inst our instructions. Uh, there were um, uh, uh, 29 um, other adverse events, um, most of them unrelated. Um, nine of them were related uh, and all were, uh, uh, had no uh, permanent or serious uh, residual. So uh, the, in terms of the second major uh, thrust of the study, uh, the safety question, um, our, our conclusion was that uh, indeed um, this, this procedure uh, for this target in this population was uh, safe. Of course, with a case series, uh, one cannot uh, prove efficacy that uh, there was no control group, so uh, there's no ability to say uh, what would happen um, with all the other things that occurred to these patients, um, uh, but no stimulation. Uh, the, and indeed, there is reason to you know, believe there's a potential for a placebo effect uh, given the amount of tension, attention that uh, needs to be paid um, to just be part of the research. Uh, and for some of these folks, they were many years post-injury and not, had not really been engaged um, with professionals as intensely as they were. So it, placebo is, is a real, um, a, a real alternate hypothesis here. Um, but uh, uh, still, in terms of being able to take the next step to go to uh, a, go beyond a, a case series, a feasibility study, um, we did look at efficacy. Uh, and our primary um, outcome measure was uh, the Mayo Portland Adaptability Inventory, and specifically that um, there would be change on that inventory uh, that exceeded the minimally clinically important difference uh, for the total score. Uh, the Mayo Portland may not be one that our listeners are um, very familiar with. It's a rehabilitation and specific, specifically brain injury rehabilitation outcome measure. Uh, it has three subscales. Uh, one of those scales uh, focuses on abilities, which you might think of as just uh, independence in terms of self-care and um, taking care of one's needs. Uh, a second is uh, called the adjustment subscale, and that's more about the ability to regulate emotions and cope with emotional issues. And the third is a participation subscale, and by that means participation in the community, uh, and essentially the extent to which one is um, out and about in the community and the independence in doing so and how engaged they are. Um, so again, our um, primary outcome measure was a significant change a clinically significant change on the total score, so uh, um, all three um, of those, uh, some of all three of those subscales. In the end, at the two-year mark, um, three of our four um, participants were responders. Um, they had um, improved uh, sufficiently to uh, exceed the minimally clinically important difference. Um, two of those uh, pretty quickly responded um, post-stimulation, um, uh, and a, the third responder was a much more gradual change over time uh, and was only a significant change um, at the two-year mark. 
And as I said, one of our individuals um, did not, uh, was not a responder. One of the things we were interested in was just where was the source of change? And so one of the um, um, post hoc analyses we did was to um, look at uh, the subscales of the Mayo Portland to see uh, what the source of that change was. And uh, what we noted was that one of our participants uh, was very much the all-star and changed dramatically uh, across um, all of the subscales, um, improving um, overall by 30%, um, which is a, a really marked uh, improvement for somebody who is in the chronic phase of, brain, of severe brain injury. Uh, for our other uh, three participants, the um, change was limited to one subscale, and that was the adjustment subscale. So what we saw was a better ab ability to regulate their emotions and uh, their, in their coping, um, but we didn't see changes in either their um, independence in terms of activities of daily living, nor did we see change in terms of their participation in the community. Uh, and by the way, even the non-responder um, did improve by 10% uh, on the adjustment scale. So in retrospect, one of our conclusions is that this target is probably more about um, uh, regulating, uh, helping person regulate emotion um, uh, than it is uh, um, some of the other aspects of the Mayo Portland, and in particular, um, one of our kind of uh, retrospective insights is that if you greatly improve somebody's ability to be out and about in the community, which um, in two, in, in all, all the, uh, at least three of the four, the three responders, we did, um, whether they are out and about in the community also depends on um, the community itself and the, particularly the family and the family supports. And, um, after many years of severe disability, not all of our um, participants' families were really ready to take this improvement and turn it into greater uh, participation in their communities. So that might be something that we consider um, in future iterations of the study and to more narrowly define our primary outcome. Uh, I'll just uh, wrap up here by saying that um, uh, we did look at some um, other way, uh, secondary um, outcomes, uh, and when we looked at um, overall functional improvement, um, in other words, uh, essentially the, um, the independence with which somebody uh, can do both motor and cognitive tasks, that improved for actually all four participants across the two years. Uh, we looked at uh, specifically the, a cognitive component score where we combined some um, neuropsychological tests. It was primarily tests of attention and memory, um, combined them into a composite, and uh, we saw improvement uh, through the first year, but when we looked out at the two-year mark, um, uh, I'm sorry, we saw improvement through the fourth assessment, which is post uh, the um, uh, rehabilitation phase. Um, but then after that, that improvement was not sustained by um, uh, three of the four. Uh, so that is also a clue um, and not inconsistent with um, other populations where we've been in the same target, where we see a divergence of the um, emotional uh, results or effects of the stimulation versus the cognitive results. Um, 
And uh, finally, um, uh, part of our study was to uh, uh, look at um, uh, look at um, cerebral metabolism and changes uh, in uh, PET um, results um, uh, post-surgically, pre and post-surgically. And um, we did see um, changes in the prefrontal cortex, and particularly the orbital frontal prefrontal uh, orbital frontal cortex and the uh, uh, frontal poles uh, that uh, was associated with the change in function observed. Um, though the kind of the surprise there was that the change in that metabolism was that the metabolism itself was reduced, not increased, not activated, and. Um, that, of course, is relative to the rest of the cortex, so the ability to, to compare from uh, one scan to the next uh, is a little bit limited, but our uh, speculation about that is that this is rep really represents kind of a signal-to-noise um, phenomenon where uh, what we may have accomplished is to uh, reduce the noise so that less signal or the same signal um, actually has a greater effect on behavior. Thank you so much. It was a great introduction and, and summary of the paper. Dr. Corrigan, uh, Dr. Sweet, could I ask you to uh, move ahead and ask some questions? Sure, thank you. Uh, I'd like to first congratulate you on your exciting work. Um, it's a very nice study. Uh, I have a couple questions for you. The first is regarding the outcome measure and the circuitry you believe to be involved in this. You state that while patients had deficits in sensory, motor, or cognitive function, the majority of their disability was due to emotional and behavioral control, which you state improved somewhat with the Mayo-Portland adaptability scale with the stimulation. So which brain pathways do you hypothesize to be involved in regulating this emotional um, and behavioral control that you wanted to modulate with stimulation of this target, of the VCVS target? Yeah, so th this is Ali Razai. So um, basically, um, with TBI, as um, everybody knows, there are many deficits depending on the location that causes structural and functional damage that can impact uh, networks involved in attention. Uh, alertness, uh, vigilance, uh, communication, cognition, behavior, motor and sensory function. And um, the uh, very significant element of disability chronically for TBI, besides the motor deficits um, that uh, Dr. Corrigan and many others in the rehab world have published, is that there is a persistent disability for those with TBI, uh, the chronic TBI, and our patients were six to 20 years after their chronic TBIs. Uh, and there's a very significant disability in, um, in behavior and behavioral self-regulation. So, uh, for example, they have difficulties with um, awareness, insight, problem solving, and uh, it's coupled to uh, mood disorders, depression, anxiety, fear, irritability, impulsiveness, and a significant amount of reward-seeking behavior. And the, the studies that I've published before show significant problems managing stress, controlling temper, improving job skills, managing memory, community participation, some of the elements that are fundamental to an individual's functioning and being independent and maintaining social, occupational, and um, other core elements of function. And these patients that we looked at had profound disability, and this is a very common phenomenon that people see over time managing these symptoms. 
So that was the broader rationale because other studies have looked at the vegetative states, which DBS does not work for, and uh, minimally conscious state, which DBS works for arousal. But this was a selection of target was to look at a behavioral regulation target. And as such, uh, the safety profile of the ventral capsule, ventral striatum has been there for over 20 years and um, a large number of studies for obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, depression and number of uh, pilot trials for addictions and other behavioral self-regulation issues. So as such, we thought that it was, a, it was a good target to explore for those with severe TBI with cognitive and behavioral uh, issues years after their injury. And specifically, uh, that this target, the nucleus accumbens ventral striatum, it's a larger target, has broad implications for uh, modulating the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex, cingulate, and some of these behavioral regulation networks. Specifically, OCD is the most well-studied where their anxiety and behavioral regulation is significantly improved with DBS in this target. So uh, it's a very large target, and um, you know, in the future, there needs to be additional probabilistic tractography and resting state functional MRI that we're doing now to further characterize the subcomponents of this target as linked to the uh, specific connectivity to these regions, for example, fine-tuning the target from a broad, broader anatomical ACPC-based target and uh, verified by microsoft recording to a more of a sophisticated anatomical targeting using probabilistic tractography and resting state fMRI that specifically optimizes the connectivity to the, these eventual medial prefrontal cortex and other structures. And that's what we're looking at the next phase of this study. But those are the um, general rationale for the symptoms and also the rationale for the target that, that we, we, uh, we follow through this paper. And I, I just add that uh, we did tend to emphasize the lower contacts, um, so we were clearly uh, affecting the nucleus accumbens specifically, and uh, of course that would tend to suggest that uh, it's a re reward circuitry um, is what we maybe were most influencing. Sure. Now, hopefully, with all of your connectivity analyses, you'll be able to learn more about these targets. As the, this target is, as you mentioned, very effective for OCD had some mixed results with the depression uh, studies done. And, and so I guess the question is, do we think that these are all part of a one common pathway or more likely several interrelated pathways? And if the latter, then could there perhaps be another area or node that would be more specific to modulating just the behaviors you're looking for in which we would maybe see a better impact in the results? Yeah, I think uh, it's the latter. These are several um, uh, networks, and um, I think part of the problem with this target and broadly with functional neurosurgery has been with some of the disappointing results, for example, with depression, is that um, these are big targets, but also the phenotype of the patients is not really clear. Um, depression or TBI uh, are very heterogeneous, and uh, so we need to just identify the specific subcomponents of the disability and um, do targeting to um, really focus it on that subcomponent. In this case, as Dr. Corrigan was saying, behavioral self-regulation, the reward circuitry is really impaired in these individuals, and um, that's what we're looking at. So some of the work that we're still working on, uh, studies, we're able to subcategorize, and depending on which target we're stimulating, we can do tra tractography and uh, volume of tissue activation and determine the symptoms that are improved and where these symptoms are optimally 
uh, changed with what targets or what network. And that's some initial work that we are um, going to publish hopefully soon, but shows that, for example, right and left side of the brain, um, characteristic changes shows uh, changes in specific networks as related to attention, to mood, anxiety, behavioral self-regulation. So this is how we can sub-characterize these and link these uh, clinical symptoms, if you will, to a network, and then this allows us to advance the field and modulate those specific networks to improve the symptoms, uh, which can result from really anything, traumatic brain injury or stroke or any other uh, damage to the brain, tumors and um, Alzheimer's or other things can be modulated. And consistent with your premise, your question, um, I think our long-term goal as a team is that if we can figure these systems out, there might be other nodes that we we could use as entryway into the systems and then maybe not have to use as invasive or even invasive at all methods of stimulation. So be able to use uh, non-invasive uh, methods to go to that node and accomplish maybe the same outcome. Great. Dr. Rogatti, do you have some questions? Uh, thank you, Dr. Rezai and Corrigan, for going over the paper and your studies and findings. As we talked a little bit about kind of the behaviors that we're talking and the neural connectivity that we're trying to target with deep brain stimulation, can you discuss with us a little bit about your thoughts in terms of timing of potentially treatment? I know a lot of the general um, audience who will be listening will be kind of curious, oh, my loved one's been in an accident, et cetera. They're in rehab or they're in an ICU. When do you start thinking about is deep brain stimulation maybe something in the future? And how do you choose your um, case study of patients to be actually quite a bit removed from their uh, injuries? So it's a good question. Uh, basically, um, in, in Parkinson's and other conditions with deep brain stimulation, for example, we're finding that earlier intervention with DBS um, can be beneficial, and studies are pointing to that. I think with TBI, um, there's a very strong element of spontaneous recovery that occurs, and that's why we chose to not look at patients before 24 months. Uh, and certainly, I think earlier on, you can modulate the networks, but um, you know the FDA and other study team felt it's important to give the maximum opportunity for the brain to have spontaneous recovery before you do an invasive surgery and put a pacemaker or a brain implant uh, inside a brain, a patient who's got a lot of uh, structural damage already. So, um, you know, and some say, why don't you do it immediately after um, the injury? And I think you need to give time for the brain to recover, the inflammation to subside, uh, and for the, there, there needs to be some basically stabilization and optimal recovery obtained. But that doesn't preclude maybe uh, some of the external approach Dr. Corrigan was saying, like transcranial magnetic stimulation or ultrasound applications to modulate these networks earlier. But with an invasive approach like this, we think we gotta wait for the full recovery and spontaneous time has passed. And certainly these people six years to 20 years after the injury, they were stable. So you can't really say they're gonna all of a sudden change after six years. I think we have time for one more question. I have a sort of a follow-up with respect to the timing of things. Um, interestingly, on some of the other studies done, particularly for depression, looking at this target, they noticed some improvement in the uh, differences in, in outcomes at initially versus two years out, whereas in your study it looked like there were stimulation right away combined with rehab, but then more long-term we didn't see as um, beneficial of results. And also 
long-term results on some of those other studies showed maybe some cognitive deficits that developed. What are your thoughts on cognitive deficits, which you're trying to improve, and also the timing of benefit? Great question. So, you know, what we saw was that over the two years in functional improvement, that it did improve over the whole two years. And so we think what I what we think is that the better behavioral uh, and emotional self-regulation uh, turned into better functional abilities. The one area that you're alluding to that we did not see that was in more granular cognitive abilities like vigilance or speed of information processing. So the very specific cognitive tasks related to attention and memory. And uh, we saw them improve for three of the four through the uh, initial stimulation and stimulation plus rehab, uh, but then declined after that. And what's not so clear from the paper perhaps is that after the rehab period, then the amount of just stimulation they had in their life, their ability to use these, these newfound capability changed dramatically. And they were, and they were returning to their prior habits and, you know, daily routines. And for three of the four, that was not very, a very stimulated or enriched kind of day-to-day -day life. So, I think that what we saw there was that uh, essentially they got dressed up with nowhere to go in terms of those cognitive, those core cognitive abilities, and if we would have been able to engage them in a little more enriched um, lifestyle, we might not have seen those that decline of those granular um, kind of uh, cognitive function. So it's the same parallel with OCD. We see some of the patients with DBS that they're now able to participate more in a um, cognitive behavioral therapy setting, whereas before their anxiety is too high to participate in CBT. And I think um, the, the lifestyle of these individuals, you know, for six years plus some 20 years, they have been dealt uh, as if they're not able to function. Uh, and so everything is geared towards that. And now they have a new sense of engagement, awareness, interactivity, and the environment needs to change to adapt for that because they're being still managed by family and caretakers as if they have the same old deficits. So really, uh, social systems need to be changed the way, because we're basically, like Dr. Corgan says, awakening these networks, if you will, and allowing better decision-making. So one of the patients, for example, had such profound impulsivity that they would not allow him to go to church or go to uh, the, the, the CVS or other stores or, or restaurants right. because he was extremely impulsive and uh, they used to call the police officer, he made a lot of comments. But afterwards, he's able to engage and go out and with family and, and others. So I think the environment needs to be engaged in the context. So DBS should never be performed in isolation for any of these conditions. It needs to be coupled to all the additional elements to optimally, to only regulate these networks and facilitate plasticity is the way, uh, is my, my thoughts. Right, and, and the behavior happens in a social context and we don't think we took that quite into account sufficiently. Wonderful. I want to really thank all the discussants and the faculty and the authors to take the time. Uh, this was a very interesting discussion. I also want to thank the audience for their interest. This concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast.